As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. What is up, you podcast humans? Thank you very much for spending time with this show that is devoted to punk, hardcore, indie rock, emo, metal, whatever it is you want to call it, as long as it is of the DIY variety, that is what we're having conversations about. And today, of course, is no exception. We've got Sean Leary, who plays in Loma Prieta and also plays in Jerome's Dream. If you've listened to new Jerome's Dream record, you need to absolutely check yourself and dive into your favorite streaming platform or just buy the record cold because trust me in saying this is could potentially be you know some top 10 records of the year for me personally and i just like it when bands continue to i guess you know not even reinvent themselves but just continue to put out really really good material and this jerome's dream record just blew blew my mind so i had to have sean on this podcast because um yeah i'm an interesting dude definitely has lived a unconventional life all centered around art and playing in bands and that sort of stuff so Great discussion, but let's talk about some ways that you can support the show. You can support the show by first. All this is free, by the way. So don't, I'm not pressuring you for money, obviously, because like that's not the, that's not the thing here. You can support the advertisers in the show. That really, really helps. But, um, email the show 100 words podcast at gmail.com. And you can also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts, or you can leave a rating on the Spotify platform. Those are free ways that you can help out this show because it all feeds into the algorithm. All I care about is other people discovering this show that need to know about it. So that's that's all I'm really doing here. And then on top of it, obviously, if you want to share this on social media, that always helps. You can tag stuff, tag bands, just be like, love this episode. You know, something very simple. I'm definitely not, uh, don't want to ask too much of you because, you know, everybody asks you for everything. You're constantly exhausted because you're like, dude, I can't do anything more. Another ask from this random podcaster? Oh my gosh, I can't do it. But anyways, all joking aside, genuinely appreciate all the listening and the support of this particular podcast. Speaking of support, I just got back from the United Kingdom. I was over at Outbreak Fest doing some live chats, which I will be bringing to you on the Outbreak podcast feed. So dive into the show notes for this and you'll be able to click a direct link that will subscribe you to the Outbreak podcast. I'll be bringing a few over to this this podcast feed, but uh, follow along there because you're going to get every single one. I did 15 different chats 
I was talking basically all weekend, but holy moly, that festival is incredible. It, <laughs> it was so special to go over there, meet people who listen to the show on a regular basis, but then on top of it, to have amazing discussions with people like <clears throat> Joseph from Tsunami, uh, Aaron from Bane, the band Buggin, the awesome hardcore band from Chicago, um, Gem from Speed, like the list could go on. Obviously, there's 15 people that uh, I discussed, but holy moly. Yeah, like like I said, just a, a great time overall and uh, really, really fun doing those live podcasts. So yeah, that's, uh, that's all I got for you. So let's dig into the conversation with Sean. And like I said, check out the new Jerome's Dream record that just came out on Iodine Recordings. Buy it. Just go ahead, buy it. Like you will not regret it. I can guarantee that. So let's go. I know specifically with uh, Jerome's Dream, uh, I've known Eric for many years and put on uh, some shows for Jerome's Dream, like in Southern California in the early 2000s, I guess, zeros or whatever, aughts. (laughs) Right, right, right. Okay. And then uh, Loma popped up into my life around the time when I was booking Sound and Fury for a couple of years, like in the, I guess, early 10s. And so I'm like, obviously well aware of both the bands. And this might be a pretty big question to start off with, but it seems like your life has always been kind of centered around art. And um, anyone that is outside of that, um, you know, it's maybe difficult for people to kind of understand, like, what's Sean doing? Like, still playing in these dumb bands and still touring? And like, you know, (laughs) how how does it kind of uh, like as you have been playing in all these bands and clearly adding on, uh, you know, Jerome's dream to your resume as well. Um, I guess, how do people kind of, you know, perceive you just in the conversations of like, Oh, what are you up to Sean? It's like, well, I'm playing another band or, you know, that sort of stuff. So I, again, I realize it's a big question to start off with, but um, yeah. What is, uh, what is the interaction with people and your art from that perspective? Well, you know, it's interesting. It's like, um, <laughs> I would say that as far as, sort of normal civilian life goes, I keep it as quiet as possible that I even play in a band. And I know that that, um, I think a lot of people like at, you know, in my age group are maybe that way too. It's, it's sort of a funny thing to, um, it's weird because I, it's like, I don't know whether to, uh, at some point, like the cat's out of the bag that I play in bands and then everyone is if they ever do any research, like I'm never trying to come out and be like, yeah, I play in like, you know, noise core bands or whatever, you know, like I never want to, I'm just really, I'm just really private. You know what I mean? As far as all that goes. Um, so there's that, but then of course there's, you know, I have even like all, most of my friends I grew up with playing music when we were teenagers and stuff like that are sort of, baffled that I've been so consistent, you know, they're like, man, you're really still doing it, huh? And, and I can't, <laughs> I can never tell whether there's a, you know, like a little bit of a, like a judgmental attitude towards it or what, but it's kind of, I guess I've also had people in my life sort of tell me like, 
I think your, um, I think your interest in playing in bands is like oh. compulsive, dude. Right, right. And so, <laughs> like, that's a uh, that's a weird thing to hear. And I kind of, you know, I had to look at that and kind of go, like, yeah, I think it is. You know, like I'm not, um, I'm not a hundred percent like enjoying it all the time. It's just like I schedule everything and I keep showing up and um there's a lot of satisfaction in it but it's not always fun you know it's like hard to juggle just having a normal life and playing in all these bands it's not you know it's not my career but it's like what I'm doing with my life I guess yeah I I really I honestly I haven't heard a person kind of describe it that way but I I understand and empathize with what you're talking about because it's that you know, that idea, like, especially as people grow older and then they start to, you know, peel away their hobbies or add the hobbies you're supposed to get into as you get older, where it's like, oh, I need to go fishing or golfing or whatever the hell people do. Um, no right. shots against that. I like golf. It's okay. But um, <laughs> just the, just that idea where it's like, this isn't the, this is the center point of my life, but it isn't the, you know, orbit that most people build their lives around. And so that's where I, I like what you're talking about, where it's just the idea that you, the consistency of showing up and wanting to create, it propels you forward rather than the reflexive nature of like, Oh my gosh, like this band is going to be the, you know, end all be all for me as far as like my life and touring is concerned. It's like, it is just in addition to all the other stuff you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to, to some degree, it's like, you know, when I was growing up and I was in my like teens and probably until I was in my late twenties or something, it felt like, you know, looking back on it, I think that being in bands, um, was so much part of my identity and it had like sort of like social currency to some degree. And now outside of the circles of, you know, other musicians I know, like, I think that people just like could not care less that I'm, I think that being, like playing in a guitar band to normal people outside of this is so like just not anything they're interested in, or it's like such a, I, you know, I don't think anyone can get their head around, like, I guess, you know, be being from my generation, it's more obvious that I would be like some 40 something dude that plays guitar or whatever. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely a strange. It's a strange conversation to have like with people at work or something, you know? Right. Yeah. Like the, the civilian or gen pop, as I like to call it, where it's just <laughs> right. the, you know, most people don't have the experience of touring regardless of whatever level you're doing it as. And so people automatically assume it's that level of, oh, so you know, you're playing in a, you know, cover band at your local bar or, oh, you're in a, you know, bus. And it's like, there's a lot of levels in between both of those. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, no, there's, there's a real misunderstanding about the, uh, what the majority of people are doing who are, you know, living that life. Sure, sure. And to your point too, just the idea that you wouldn't have the time to be able to explain to a person, well, it's like, no, actually we use 15 passenger vans and maybe if we're lucky, we have a trailer and like, <laughs> it's like, right. I don't have the time to go into this. Like you're just gonna, your eyes will glaze over and you'll be bored. Yeah, I have, I got, you know, I have practice to go to. I don't have time for that. <laughs> totally, totally. I gotta, I gotta make loud noises with my amp. So like, you know, see you later. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which loud noises with amp is a, uh, is a perfect pivot point where we can talk about your, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but your upbringing was uh, in Northern California, correct? 
Yeah, yeah. I grew up about an hour north of San Francisco. Okay. What what town in particular? I grew up outside of Petaluma, which is, oh, okay. um, yeah, it's a, it's a funny, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, like I've been, I left there basically as soon as I could, like in, when I was, you know, 17, 18 years old. But now whenever I tell people that I'm from there, like other people in the Bay area or whatever, they're, they're like, Ooh, Petaluma. It's so cute. It's so hip. And my perspective growing up there was that it was the country and it was terrible and people were really conservative. And I like, couldn't wait to get out of there basically. Um, but yeah, so, you know, but it, in a way it was great because there was a really weird punk scene there. And I think it has a lot to do with where I ended up musically because it was sort of pretty backward and disconnected from like the Bay Area punk scene. And mm-hmm. people were just doing weird stuff and it was cool and free. And I still got to see kind of like relatively bigger shows, but um yeah, it's just interesting. You know, I always think like if I'd grown up in, um, in Berkeley or something, then things would have been different. You know, I think the, the lack of the scarcity of things and the people having to sort of figure it out on their own kind of pre-internet. And, you know, there was just a lot of like punk when I was growing up, where I was growing up really did kind of mean freedom. And like, people weren't, people would kind of talk trash on bands that just sounded like two, four, like punk rock, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of set the bar in a certain way where when I started like hearing bands that I thought were interesting, but relatively like fit into the world of punk, that's what I connected with and sort of like what I wanted to do, I guess. Sure. Well, I I think you hit the nail on the head in regards to that, like the proximity to a scene where you can, go to shows and have access to culture, but far enough removed where you are not going to have this like, you know, Mecca of people going where it's like, Oh yeah, of course you're going to hit San Francisco or Berkeley on tour. It's like, you know, no, like having shows in Petaluma, like I know bands have obviously done shows there over the years, Mm -hmm. but that's not, you know, common. (laughs) Yeah. It was definitely very much like a, you know, you have to make it yourself kind of thing. Like people were bringing bands through on tour and that's surprising looking back now. Cause as a kid, I didn't really have any concept that it was weird for a national touring band to stop in. Like, you know, Petaluma has like a sign when you drive in that says the chicken capital of the world. And like, that is what, you know, it's like a country town. So it's funny that we had venues that would support like actual shows, you know? Um, but at the same time, yeah, the punk scene was mostly just weird bands. I think, you know, I think it's that thing where it's like, maybe, you know, it was like Primus was from up there and bands like that. So there was always this influence of just freaky stuff. And I was never into Primus, but you definitely like every band had like the Primus guy in it. And so there couldn't just be like a normal band because it was always like, oh, dude, you can tell that drummer is, you know, he's definitely like playing a bucket, you know? Yeah. Oh, totally. It's like that uh, improvisational nature that people understand that's like, okay, I got to be into something besides what's being played on the radio or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. I'm going to gravitate towards this weird stuff that like I've just randomly seen, you know, either through friends of friends recommending stuff or what's happening at school or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. 
And so you, uh, I, I know if my internet research uh, proves me right, you are an only child. And uh, what was the, you know, like mom and dad in the house as far as your family structure was concerned? I had a pretty unconventional upbringing. Like my, um, my, well, my parents are pretty far apart in age. Like my dad was, I think, 20 something years older than my mom. But, you know, kind of interestingly, it was like he was still the, like, you know, immature one in in the relationship. And so, um, yeah, basically my parents split up, you know, when I was maybe three or four. And then my mom basically decided to go to college. So she was like in her early thirties at that point. And, um, so yeah, my childhood was funny because it was like, we lived out in the country, um, you know, maybe like a 20 minute drive from Petaluma or something. And my mom was like in school the whole time. Like she went straight through and got a master's degree. So from the time I was four till I was maybe 13 or something, she was just like super busy, like working and going to school. So I kind of just spent a lot of time on my own. Like I was like just out like building forts and like kind of trying, you know, from the time I was maybe nine or 10, like I had a guitar and was like trying to figure things out, but I had no real input, you know? Um, So it's interesting, you know, I like think back on that and I'm like, sounds kind of sad when you say it out loud, like, oh yeah, I was the only child in the country. There was no one around, but it was kind of awesome. Sure. And I think I'm, I think I'm like a little bit warped for it, you know, cause like I, I sort of find myself in, um, in, I don't know, particularly like in situations that feel like official at all. Like if I'm at, like if I'm working, I like don't really, or in school, like I kind of didn't know how to like relate to people on like just a normal level. Like I'm not like a conversation starter, you know, cause sure. I, I just kind of, um, was like this like feral kid. And, uh, just was like building bike jumps and forts and, you know, like, yeah, I could just kind of like do what I wanted. And so, I don't know. I think there's some level where playing in a band and particularly like touring when I was young felt like I was getting back to that kind of level of freedom. Cause there's not really anyone to answer to, especially with touring in like a DIY punk band where you and your bandmates are making the decisions about where you're going, about what you're going to do. And you basically just have to like stick with each other and you're going to, you know, not really answer to anyone but each other. Right. And get, yeah, get from point A to point B. And yeah, cr- I mean, I know this sounds very <laughs> grandiose, but just like, you know, create your own destiny and adventure. It's like. No, I think that. Yeah. Yeah. But and I, I, I see what you're talking about where and I'm sure playing in bands and starting to socialize with people who might have similar interests also probably pushed you to a spot where you were at least comfortable, you know, maybe striking up a conversation in that context, as opposed to, you know, at school where it was like, I don't want to, I, I don't really feel like I've got anything in common with these people. So I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I've always felt perfectly comfortable, um, y- you know, in the, in the worlds where I th- feel I fit, you know what I mean? Like in, um, in the music scene. And I guess when I was in school, you know, like, junior high. And I, I only went to high school for a year and a half, but when I was there, I was just, I would like see someone who obviously like was into the same stuff I was into and just go and, you know, just act weird toward at them. You know, like I was like, all right, that guy's got a black flag shirt. I guess we're friends. I am thrilled to welcome on a new sponsor of this show. And that is Sunday drive records. 
They are a very, very cool independent record label based out of Texas, and you need to go to their website. You can find a link in the show notes, but it's also sundaydrive-records.com. They really remind me of a lot of stuff that was happening in the 90s in regards to releasing like hardcore and indie rock. Like it's a very initial records type of vibe. Basically, you know, working with bands that are on the up and up. Like I'll just give you some examples. And honestly, I love all this stuff. They work with bands like Glare and Brokenhead and Money and Anklebiter. And as long as it kind of has that, you know, punk, hardcore, indie rock, emo influence, they're so down to work with them and they have a very very cool aesthetic and i just love what they do so once i got to know the label owner and we became friends and i got to meet him a few years ago at the program skate shop here in fullerton i was ecstatic to be able to uh yeah let you the user and the listener of this very podcast know about sunday drive records so go to sundaydrive-records.com shop around listen to some bands, and find your favorite new thing. Because that's definitely what I do when I trip across their website and their Instagram and listen to their new bands that they sign. I love it all. So Sunday Drive Records, shout out to you. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like, the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Ray. With that kind of what you're talking about, the, you know, isolation uh, in regards to just where you're growing up and kind of the, you know, disparate stuff that your parents were obviously doing to, you know, keep a roof over your head and obviously study to school and all those things. Um, what, w- when you started to go to school, what was your interest lying in? Was it, you know, primarily, because it sounds like obviously what we were talking about at the beginning, it art was always, you know, whether it was drawing, painting, photography, like you were always kind of dabbling with that has that always kind of been in your DNA, so to speak? I think so. I mean, I, my, um, my mom basically was, uh, when she went back to college, when I was a kid, she was, a she was an art major and she still is. My mom's a watercolor teacher now. Um, Amazing. and she's just like, yeah, a really talented person. And, um, you know, so it was like cool growing up around that and, I did spend a lot of time with her. She was going to Sonoma state university. And so I was like, I guess, you know, I spent a lot of time like alone at 
at home, just like doing whatever, or she would take me to school with her and I would just have to kill time, like cruising around the art department. So that was fun. Like I'd always just be kind of like checking out, like hanging out in the sculpture room, talking to, you know, talking to weird grownups or whatever. Um, And so, yeah, I think I was always interested in art. My mom's friends and my dad's friends too. You know, I I spent some weekends with my dad and it was kind of like, they both were um, surrounded by creative people. And I have like an older half brother who's much older than me, 16 years older. And he was always playing in bands and stuff. So, um, yeah, so, you know, art was always sort of, it's funny. Like it just felt like that's what, as a kid, I don't, yeah, I don't think that I had any concept that that wasn't what, I mean, I guess I knew that my other friends' parents were, you know, building houses or were doctors or whatever they were doing, you know, but on some level, yeah, I just liked to sit around and draw. And then I think when I got to be like in junior high, I had a friend who um, got really into photography. And so I, you know, kind of like he and I would like skate together and he just always had a camera with him and I thought it was interesting. So we kind of built out like a dark room in his basement together and I got super into photography. And then that was like basically all my first pretty much, I mean, almost every job I've ever had in my life has been photo related. Like when I was in ninth grade, I got a job at a photo lab and, uh, I, you know, I had a couple like cafe jobs and stuff, but it's pretty much been like since the mid nineties, I've been like working, doing photo stuff. So that's That's sort of like another, yeah, it's like really fortunate. And, and it seems strange because I made, I made like, I've made like zero life plans ever. Yeah. So it's like totally (laughs) funny. I'm like, man, that's crazy that I've had this consistent thing that I don't even think I thought of as a career until like the last five or 10 years, you know, I was just like, need to make enough money to keep going on tour. All right, cool. Well, you know, I know how to process film and then later things went digital and I was like, I'm good at Photoshop. So, you know, I'm good at digital teching. Like, um, so yeah, it's, yeah, being, you know, being around art has always felt very comfortable to me. And, um, you know, I feel like I just, it was a natural progression. I mean, I think to your point, just that idea, like, especially when you start to feel like you have some control over your life and you're making your own decisions, arguably like in high school where you start to be able to, you know, have more of your own path, but you're, you're not thinking about it in those terms of like, oh, this is like going to practically help me later on in life besides like, you know, maybe getting okay grades or whatever, but you're not, you know, you don't have the foresight to be like, oh, these skills I'm building with photography are really going to pay off in the future. It's like, no, no one thinks that way. Right. And yeah, if I had any sort of like practical thought in my brain at that age, I certainly wouldn't have like, you know, pursued playing in punk bands (laughs) as hard as I did. But, you know, um, I'm glad I did. Like life has been much more interesting for it, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so I'm, I'm guessing that kind of via skateboarding and is how you got introduced to more, you know, left of center, like punk and hardcore stuff. Dude, interestingly, I think I'm one of the few people because I, you know, it's like I listen to interviews with musicians who I respect often. Almost everyone's story is that skating is kind of was the avenue. And it's funny for me, it was kind of like 
skating was something I was doing for like maybe a year in, in junior high. And I think that I was just too tall and like awkward and I couldn't, I didn't have like the, like my center of gravity is not, you know, doesn't work with it. Like I just kept hurting myself. And I felt like in my hometown, like, I guess the thing was once I started kind of like cultivating my own identity, I just didn't want to be around like macho dudes and like jocks. And I kind of, when I go to the skate park, I'm like, man, these dudes are just like, like jocks who smoke weed. Like these guys suck. And so, so I was pretty like anti skating and I kind of just happened to make friends with like a couple kids who were like a year older than me, who were also just sort of weirdos who weren't good at sports really. And, um, were super into like fringe, like messed up music. And so I kind of skipped from just like being in seventh grade and being into like, you know, Soundgarden and skateboarding to going to punk shows and really getting into like kind of bizarre stuff, like getting into Captain Beefheart and getting into um, like Flipper, you know, like weird stuff that's punk, but not. And it was really it's kind of interesting. Um, it was really just people in this small group of friends that I was making, like dubbing tapes for each other and stuff. That was how I got access to all these things, but I didn't really have any differentiation. Like to me, I was sort of like, all right, well, like I wasn't seeing any of these bands live. So to me, I was sort of thinking like born against and like pavement are, just both two weird bands that I'm into and they probably like know each other and play shows together, you know, right. cause I'm just some was- kid that lives in the country. Someone made me a tape that had both of those on the same tape, you know? Yeah. It was all the same. Yeah. And I, I love that innocence where all of us were drinking from this fire hose of bands and it was all part of the same thing where it's just like, you know, even if you were, you know, like captured by grunge in some capacity, which like every kid in the nineties was at some point mm-hmm. in, right. and it was that idea that it's like, Oh yeah, dude, Bush and rage against the machine. Like, obviously they're both played on the radio, you know, like they'll, they probably played some shows together and stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> right. know, it's just that idea where it's like, it's all part of the same thing. Cause like you said, it's all put the same tape. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And to me, it's sort of like, well, it all seemed equally far away from like, uh, Guns N' Roses or something, whatever I'd been listening to when I was a couple of years younger. So, right, right. Um, yeah, I just had no real concept, but yeah, it was, so, you know, I think all that stuff, it's, it's sort of, I think that's, that was important for my sort of musical development, you know? Absolutely. For sure. Because you arguably too, like whatever you were getting into might not have ever got the cool cosine if you were you know really in the scene at that point <laughs> because it's like right. oh, dude i can't believe you like that band that band sucks or whatever it's like one friend says something and it forever sticks in your brain as not being cool uh or <laughs> and then it's just like oh wow i should have listened to this band because they're great i shouldn't have listened to that you know random kid at a show or whatever totally and and you know kind of by that same token i will say like the kids that turned me on to all this totally bizarre stuff when i was like just a little kid, they were hyper judgmental of, you know, like it was sort of like, all right, if you're going to be listening to this, these cool tapes, I'm making you like no more Nirvana, dude, like that kind of thing. And so there was this period of time where I, you know, just totally took a left turn and was like, yeah, Nirvana's not interesting anymore. And now of course I'm like 
you know, once I sort of like regained my own sense of self, I'm like, dude, Nirvana is still the best, you know, <laughs> one of the best bands of that generation or, you know, maybe, I mean, I, I still listen to Nirvana actively all the time, but there was a couple of years where it was like off limits, you know? Yeah, of course. Right. You go through those phases where it's like, oh, it's not cool. And then, you know, now you find yourself like knee deep in a Pearl Jam book or whatever. And it's like, oh, okay, it's pretty, <laughs> you know, actually they're pre- pretty good. They're pretty good. Yeah. Dude, nostalgia is a powerful thing, you know? Oh my goodness. You look like you like band merch, right? Well, let me put it this way. I love band merch. I'm obsessed with band merch. And rockabilia.com is the place where I like to look for it. And if you go to that website right now and use this promo code, 100 words or less, it gets you 10% off of your entire order. What I love about them is that they're independently owned, ships from the Midwest here in the United States, and they have a lot of cool, what I like to call, quote unquote, dead stock. So, you know, bands finish a tour, maybe don't really know what to do with it. Maybe they don't have an online store or whatever. They ship it to Rockabilia because like, so there's, this is just me randomly poking around their site. They have an old 2009 Coheed and Cambria tour shirt. And they also have like an old Run DMC shirt from like, I don't know, early or mid 80s, something like that. Regardless, it is really, really cool. It's all officially licensed. No bootleg stuff. Rockabilia is a great company. Hardcore kids work there. That is why I love supporting what they do. So go to rockabilia.com. Please use the promo code 100 words or less, 10% off your entire order, and go shopping. Thank you, Rockabilia. When you started to get into the, you know, more left of center stuff and started to, you know, maybe dip down to shows in Berkeley and going to Gilman and stuff like that, were you immediately taken by the idea of playing in a band or was that something you had to work your way up to? I think I was, I mean, I was kind of playing in bands concurrently with all this stuff. It kind of started in, like I had a guitar from the time I was, I guess I had one from the time I was like a little kid, like four or something, but I kind of like had I got like a better guitar when I was maybe 10 and I was just sort of messing around and my brother had showed me like a couple things. And then when I was in, I think seventh grade, I decided I wanted to play drums. And so I had some money just from, you know, whatever, like random mowing lawns and just doing random work for friends, parents and stuff. I bought this, like the crappiest drum set ever for, you know, probably 150 bucks or something. And, uh, and I started jamming with this kid I knew. He had like a guitar and an amp. And so I left my drums like at his house so that we could practice there. And within like a week or two, he was so much better than me at drums. Like it was so disappointing. Right. And so I basically like doubled down and was like, I need to get good at guitar. And so this was like, yeah, you know, junior high school era. And so that was the period of time where I got like really serious about like I was sort of like, I need to play every day. Like I need to keep up with this dude who has total mu- natural musical ability <laughs> right. because I never, you know, it, it, like the notion of being in a band was just such a cool concept, but suddenly here I am, I'm in a band and this other dude is better than me at both drums and guitar and is getting better day by day. You know what I mean? There's no way I was going to catch up with him at drums. So there he was playing my drum set and I started, you know, really trying to figure out how to play guitar. And he was, he was one of those couple of kids who was older than me. And, and he had like an uncle who, dude, he had a crazy life story where it was like his aunt and uncle were living kind of in San Francisco and Seattle in the eighties. And were like, 
you know, friends with all the really freaky, like they're friends with Flipper and they were like, he was sort of like, oh yeah, like my, uh, you know, yeah, his aunt would like turn him on to all this crazy stuff. So I think we just had access to all this weird music and, and so every little like phase that we go through for three months, we'd be trying to emulate playing music, but we were, you know, terrible. We were like little kids, you know, basically we were just, it probably all sounded the same, but to us, we're like, all right, man, like now we're in our germs phase, you know? All right. right. Now we sound like flipper, but I don't think we, you know, I think we just sounded like straight up trash until we were probably <laughs> 16 or so, it took, you know, it took years and, and bringing in other people who had other backgrounds and stuff. Like we found another kid who played drums in a metal band and he was actually like pretty awesome. So then he ended up being our drummer and yeah. So yeah, I mean, all this music had a, you you started to, yeah. And I I love, I not to interrupt your chain of thought, but I just love like, usually it is those kids and people you find that were kind of bred on metal being like oh so you're the really good drummer because you can play fast and you got double bass and like you can kind of do anything we throw at you <laughs> dude the standards of the metalhead kids it was funny because that dude it was i you know i remember knowing him in my pe class because he was the dude that uh, he was so hesh that he refused to wash his pe clothes and they kept like kicking him out of school for it you know like he would show up and the pe teacher would be like drake you smell terrible i hit the showers go to the office and I was like, this kid's kind of cool. And so, you know, we kind of slowly became friends, even though I was not Hesh. And I think it took like a year of, you know, like we were like trying to figure each other out. But I became friends with him and his metal band. And it was so funny because they were such burnouts. Like they were just like dudes that would be like huffing and, you know, getting drunk at school and stuff. And this is like in eighth grade or whatever. But then they were phenomenal musicians. And so it was this weird thing where I'm like, Man, these guys seem like they have brain damage, but they're so good at music. Right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like just being able to find someone who has some level of talent that clearly exceeds anything that you or maybe your other group of friends has, but it's like, oh man, just getting them sometimes to show up to practice or whatever, like that's, you know, an insurmountable feat. <laughs> right. Right. It's yeah. it's comical looking back at it, but yeah, it's so uh, anyway, you know, I I wish I'd known more Heshers because it would have really raised the bar, but yeah, totally. there just weren't that many to choose from in Petaluma. Right. Right. Uh, I wanted to, there, there was, you've articulated your love for uh, bands like, uh, you know, Shotmaker and three penny opera and all of those, um, uh-huh. you know, I, I, I kind of bunch them into the, you know, great American stake religion, like, you know, like, you yeah. know, of Uranus, all that sort of stuff. I right. just think, I I'm with you and I love those bands as well. And I, I think that there is that it's interesting to see the type of bands that, um, you know, are able to like their legacies live on, um, and people mm-hmm. speak about them still versus bands. Like I think Shotmaker really doesn't get the love that they deserve. How, I agree. yeah. How, how did you trip across that? Because obviously that's a, you know, no matter what time that band existed, I mean, obviously in the nineties, but that was an effort to like get into them. So was that just kind of random happenstance that it got presented to you? Dude, I think, I think it was completely random. It was like, I mean, it was random and it wasn't, it was, there was one guy who was probably, you know, 10 or 15 years older than me who 
played drums in a band I really liked and ran like a distro at every punk show. And he was so awesome. You know, it was like total 90s spirit kind of stuff that I don't see anymore where he had this distro and everything was really priced like at cost. So it'd be like you'd buy seven inches from him for two or three dollars max. And then I think through that, because his band had toured nationally a couple times and he would just come home with all this random stuff. So I would buy stuff out of his distro. And I think one of the records I bought had like a giant, you know, like, uh, like a double size Xerox that was someone else's distro that had hundreds of items in it. And they all just had like little tiny descriptions, you know, like a, like a one sentence description. And the one for shop maker, I remember said, uh, emo without the whining. And I was like, that sounds like something I'd be into, you know, cause at the time there were like emo was sort of like a term that I'd heard and the bands that I'd heard locally that played it. It was, it was kind of that thing. I was like, man, this is interesting, but it's like too performative, you know, like I, I don't know if I can get into, I don't just, yeah, it's it just seems too like, yeah, exactly. It seemed too crybaby or something even though I like respected that it was kind of like I was looking for music that wasn't macho. I just wanted to hear stuff that was like extremely heavy and not like masculine. You know what I mean? And it's sort of a, it was a hard, it was a tall order at the time. So I ordered that record and I think I ordered a, like a born against record too, who I knew of because I'd heard someone cover one of their songs on a record. And both of those records, it was sort of like at that point, like that was the turning point. Like I remember receiving those records and like putting on the shop maker record. And I didn't even know how to feel about it, but I knew that I needed to listen to it again. You know, like I put, I immediately put it back on and like dubbed it onto a tape and was like, I'm going to have to walk around and listen to this. Like, this sounds insane. What the hell is this? Um, and I still am kind of like, I don't know that that first shop maker LP is sort of like unrivaled for me, but I know that, I mean, it has a lot to do with, the context of it just being the first thing I ever heard that was like that, but they're just a weird band, you know, like, I just think it was really probably, you know, from, from the research I've done, it's like, I think that they were making that music and in a way where um, it's just like what happened, like they weren't going for anything specific and it was just like lightning in a bottle, I think, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think that's why bands, especially when you're talking about, the you know like the infancy of the internet where it's like you have some ability to look stuff up online but for the most part it's not easy and it's like every nugget of information you're trying to drink in of these bands that seems so like like you said it's just like this total breadcrumb slash scavenger hunt where you're starting to place these things together where it's like oh okay like Ottawa played with this band and like, you're just, you know, you're, you're sent off in a whole different ball game, but it, you do feel like you get high off that search. And then once you hear it, you're just like, Oh my gosh, like how, why were they even making this music? Like they shouldn't have been, but they did. And it's wild. Yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't even liken it to anything I'd heard before. And you know, now I listen to it and I'm like, Oh yeah, well they probably were into Fugazi and they probably, you know, there are a couple things that I think that they were probably into, but um, yeah, it was just one of those things where I'm like, well, what would have, ha- how would things be different if I hadn't ordered that record or if it had been, and the other thing that happened to me pretty often back then was like, I would 
order records out of like heart attack or whatever, like that heart attack, the, the fanzine that ebullition put out was sort of like, you know, that, that like had a huge amount to do with, um, my access to music at that point in time. And I would like order things from distros there and they would just never come. So right. it'd be stuff where you could just like send cash in the mail and just like never ever hear back. And sometimes you'd write a, like a second letter and they'd be like, you know, two months later, like, Oh, sorry, man, here you go. Or sometimes you just like your money's just gone. Right. Um, right. Or, or you get two seven inches as an apology where it's like, Oh, <laughs> right. Thank you. That's good. Yeah. yeah send you something else and your money back. Oh, we ran out of it, but here, you know, it was like good intentions and all that. But, um, yeah. So I'm like, what if the shop maker record just never came, man? Like what, who knows? Maybe I'd be, you know, playing in a ska band now. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For sure. <laughs> um, and part, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned ebullition cause I still, I, I think that's such a crucial component for not only most people nationally, but being from California and having the access to, I mean, I remember the first time I went to Santa Barbara and like went to a show up there and you could drop by the ebullition warehouse and like shop. And it was like watching Kent McClard. You're just like, who that like, that's Kent McClard. Like, this is insane. I can't believe I'm here. But like that, <laughs> that idea of what you're talking about, where it's like, they were trying to make this music as accessible to kids as possible while also keeping it insular, which sounds so weird, but like, that's what they did. And that's what they, you know, continue mm-hmm. to do. Right. No, it's true. It's true. And it yeah. was, yeah, it, you know, I have to thank them because it, I mean, on one hand, the, um, there was something going on like with heart attack where it would be like, they would give certain things, negative reviews. And I would know by the review that like, that was going to be like my stuff, you know, like I was like, Oh dude, I'm going to like that based on right. the way that they spoke disparagingly about it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. You're like, Oh, they, if they hated this, I'm going to love this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. The reasons that they hate this are exactly what I'm into. You know, they're like, uh, unlistenable. This sounds insane. I don't like, you know, this is just pure noise. And I'd be like, all right, cool. I gotta, yeah, I'm going to find that $4 for a seven inch. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It seems like with, uh, you know, basically all the bands that you've existed in, uh, you know, from Loma to, you know, Drumstream to everything else that you've been a part of, it's always been, you know, pretty independent. And I know that that is clearly a through line that many punk and hardcore bands kind of exist in. Um, but, but it seems like you have kind of worn that as a badge of pride, um, in some respects, What's been your, I guess, experience with the business side of things? And I use maybe business in air quotes um, with, you know, independent music and just the idea of like, all right, well, I know that we need to get paid $150 in order to make it to the next show. um, So we'll do that. But, you know, we're not going to like look at this as kind of careerist opportunities or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, I've kind of looked at it and I think everyone in Loma Prieta has looked at it like, it's not like we're martyrs for being a DIY band. It's more that it makes the most sense for us. And I mean, really, yeah, it was kind of like I, at some point I kind of arrived at like, I th- we're doing it selfishly. Like the reason that we didn't have a booking agent for a long time was because we felt that we could make better decisions about where we would, you know, like fit best. And we had a network of people that would book shows for us and, I mean, I've always felt weird about, um, you know, like trying to get people to pay you more than 
you deserve or things like that for sure, you know, but it's interesting because, you know, Loma Prieta is doing a, um, we're doing a tour for this new record that we have coming out at the end of June. And this is the first tour that we've ever done. That's been booked by like a booking agent. And, mm-hmm. and I feel I have like really mixed feelings about it, but it's kind of one of these things where um, I think the world, I kind of realized in the last five years, like the world of punk has changed around us and I don't want to be uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of like, um, there's sort of no way for us to operate. Like we were getting taken advantage of basically for trying to be a DIY band, because I just don't think that exists in the same way. Like I know that there are still like DIY networks to tour in, but yeah, for our band, it would be funny. Like, and it's sort of the scenario where like, I'm a dude in my like early mid forties and like, I can't show up to the show and like have it get shut down by the cops. Like when I'm 3000 miles from home and I can't show up and like find out that the show is actually like in someone's parents' basement and the parents are younger than me or whatever. Like, it's like, I need, I need like certain, uh, you know, I need to know that like things are going to (laughs) function like that, you know, that someone that the person that booked the show isn't going to like disappear with the door money or whatever, because that has like happened before, you know? So, um, and we're just trying to exist as a band that can like afford to keep existing as a band. Like, you know, I do not want in any way to like take advantage of anyone or, um, you know, I don't care if our band is profitable. Like we're, you know, really trying to make exactly the music we want to make and do things on like the terms that we want to do them. But it's also, yeah, it's been funny where we're kind of like, well, we want to tour with our friends band who maybe like is, you know, like less well-known than us or whatever, but, oh, but we can't because they have a booking agent and their booking agent, like wants them to headline and wants them to get paid like this, you know, basically like all of the money and it's like stuff like that kept happening. And so we're like, well, I think we have to have a, we have to like, we can't be a DIY band anymore. This sucks, you know? And I'm sure people will listen to this and be like, that's trash, you know, because of course you can, but I guess it's also just a matter of like, I didn't get into playing in bands to deal with like the business side of playing in bands. And I certainly at this point in my life have way too much like adult stuff going on. Like, I don't want to have to like, you know, talk to venues about minutia and you know, negotiate right. money with people and stuff like that. So yeah. Anyway, lo- long yeah. story short, we have a booking agent booking this tour and it's been f- a lot easier than <laughs> the last few, but you know, it's, it's a strange feeling to hand over the reins. Like we keep having these conversations where we're like, is this the right thing? Like I feel weird about this. And yeah. I don't, I'm used to sort of knowing everything that's going to happen but at the cost of like having to figure out everything that's going to happen. Yeah, no. And I, I, I think it's, I, I understand where you're coming from. And I think it's, it, it, it takes a shape of what it is that you probably, you know, need as like, obviously where all of you at in life, where the band is at, like there's definitely the ability to, you know, operate off of flying by the seat of your pants for, you know, a prolonged period of time. But then once it comes down to the fact that you're like, yeah, actually like what I'm doing here, like I don't 
want, I don't want to play like, you know, 25 shows in a row that are like the worst thing I've ever experienced. You know, it's like, (laughs) I I want to have some semblance of organization. And like you said, just those, you know, like normal things that you would want from a show. It's like, yeah, I don't expect 150 people to be here every night, but I would like the fact that, you know, there's some level of promotion and like everybody's, everybody's like holding up there into the bargain. Like we're going to show up and play. Um, You know, hopefully everybody else is able to follow along from that. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't want to play at one in the morning, you know, just there's like certain (laughs) things. I don't want, I just, mainly I just got tired of like the show gets broken up by the cops and stuff like that. Like I love playing house shows, but don't book a seven band house show and have the touring band play last dude. Like, don't do it, you know? So (laughs) right. Anyway, little, little rules and that you, you learn over time where it's like, Oh yeah. Like we got to play first. Like we're (laughs) shut down immediately. Yeah. We're not, we're not doing this. I will say we, on our last tour, we booked a show in Eugene, Oregon. Loma Prieta had never played there and I hadn't played there in like 20 years. Mm-hmm. and these kids booked us a house show in Eugene on like a Monday night. And I think six bands played and it was so much fun. And like, that's the kind of thing where I'm like, man, like this is sort of what it's all about. And I, you know, that's the, that's the fine line. I don't know. You know, it's like, if that's what I want to be doing, I don't know how to get back there. Those happen so infrequently, but it happened. And I was like, dude, I'm 42. I shouldn't be here, but this is so rad. This is a crazy ass show. People are destroying this place. Right. Right. (laughs) And yeah, if you, if you don't look for those opportunities, then, you know, it's not going to pop up on your, you know, Instagram feed or whatever, like for someone DMing you, it's just like, you know, these are definitely different uh, functions that bands have to exist in. Like you said, at this day and age where it's like the DIY stuff still clearly exists, but you know, you can't, for every one show you play like that, there's could be a litany of other shows where it's not that, you know? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Evilgreed.net is what you should point your website browser towards because they are an amazing online solution for bands and record labels to sell their stuff. But what does that mean to you? That means that you can buy that merch and that pieces of vinyl and whatever it is you're looking for on that website. I was actually able to hang out with the Evil Greed peeps when I was over in the UK at the Outbreak Festival. I I just love them as humans. Had uh, you, you know some great 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 meal with them, and it was just so much fun. But what makes them special is the fact that they have a very curated lens in which they view their web stores through. Like they don't just open it up to everybody. They have labels like Sergeant House and Run for Cover. And uh, yeah, a bunch of other cool things. But on top of it, too, is they also sell really cool merch from these bands that sometimes it's exclusive to them. It's really, really cool. So go to evilgreed.net, browse around, find your favorite thing, and use this promo code. That's the key. That's the kicker. 100 words gets you 10% off your entire order. They're based in Berlin, Germany, but they ship to you really fast here in America. And I love that. I've ordered from them. I've got stuff in like a week. It's incredible. So go to evilgreed.net. Use the promo code 100words. It gets you 10% off your entire order. Thank you to Evil Greed for the support of this show. Kind of with the you know idea of what you have been doing with uh, Loma as far as just the you guys are always down to, you know, experiment and obviously push the boundaries of what, you know, a traditional quote unquote screamo band would sound like. And I Mm -hmm. know that that is a function of 
just the fact that people's tastes change and obviously, you know, musicianship grows and stuff like that. The is the, I guess, deciding factor for the fact that you feel like you're ready to put out more Loma stuff. Is it just the, the idea that like, okay, now we have a collection of songs that we think are representative or do you throw a ton of stuff away? Like what's the the process of that? Yeah. I mean, I think with this record, we threw away so much stuff and it's, okay. it's like, kind of it's kind of funny. Um, you know, that's, it's been a thing in our band for a long time where it's, it's so challenging for us all to be satisfied and it can be really frustrating. Like, I think that it's a, it's a unique band and it's funny. Like our, our bass player, James, who's been playing in the band for about 10 years now. Um, but wasn't our original bass player. Like he joined. And then a couple years later, we were working on uh, self portrait, which was our last LP. And it was just like getting to a point where we, I think the, the three of us that had, you know, kind of been in the band together for a long time, were like having, it's like, we're having disagreements, but they're just all about creative stuff. And just sort of about that kind of thing where it's like, we have 25 songs, but we can't really even agree on 10 to put out. And like, I don't want to call it arguing, but for lack of a better word, we're like arguing. Everyone's like, so, um, tense about the situation. And so I asked James, you know, our sort of new bass player at the time, like, why is this band like this? And he was like, Oh dude, it's cause in like a normal band, there's never like that many people that are that invested, you know, like there's usually like <clears throat> a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. There's usually, there's usually like, if you're lucky, like one person who's sort of like, you know, like psychotically invested in the band or whatever. And I think for our band, it kind of ended up in this situation where there were like multiple personalities, all of whom are strong personalities and whose like identities are caught up in like the quality of the things that we're putting out. Um, And so it'd be like that kind of thing. And I think, you know, as we've been able to step away a little bit, you know, like we don't all live in the same city anymore. Um, We're not touring half the year anymore. Like all this stuff, it's gotten... Um, there's like no, like, like toxicity, like there used to be in the band at all anymore, but it still is the kind of thing where we just keep writing stuff. And then like of five songs, it'll be like, I think this one is something we can all agree on. And so that's sort of why it just like took us forever to make another LP. And there's no real urgency because we're not really like, we need an LP so we can tour, you know, it's like, we're not thinking of things in those terms. Yeah, right. You're not, you don't have to be on the, you know, proverbial music industry hamster wheel of like, it's been two years. We got to get new music out there to, you know, pitch for the getting on the festivals or whatever. It's like you just operate on your own wavelength. Right, right. Which, you know, I mean, the drawback to that is like every time we'd announce a tour, like, you know, on, on like social media or whatever, like all the comments would be like, damn, thought you guys broke up, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's kind of constantly like, whoa. Loma forget a reunion tour. It's like, no, no, we didn't break up. Yeah. Just, just look at our announcements. We've just, you know, yeah, we've just been here kind of working in the corner. Yeah. Glad, glad you think we're back. Uh, we never, never left, I guess. Exactly. I guess technically we are back coming to a city near you. <laughs> totally. Totally. And how'd you get piped in with the uh, Jerome's Dream crew? I mean, clearly you exist obviously in the same ecosystem, but um, did you just, were you just friendly with the guys and they were like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, let's have uh let's have Sean come along for this. 
Well, it, I guess the way it went down was like, um, I'd heard sort of like rumblings that they were going to reform. And then one day I got this like email out of nowhere and it was from Eric from Jerome's dream. Um, this would have been in like 2018 or something. And, uh, I'd never talked to Eric before I met him and he was like, you know, Hey, I play drums in this band, Jerome's dream. We're talking about doing some shows with Loma Prieto want to play like a show or some shows with us. And, um, I, I like legitimately thought someone was like trying to like prank me, you know, like I was like, this is cruel. Like, uh, like kids, man, people are mean, you know, like I couldn't, I just sure. sort of like, didn't really, you know, I was like, of course I answered the email, but I was like, this is messed up, dude. Um, and it turned out that it really was Eric. And we like got on the phone and chatted and it was kind of one of those things where like, from the first like five minutes that we were talking, I was like, Oh, I'm like friends with this guy. Like this guy's awesome. You know, Eric's great. And so we ended up booking, uh, I think we did like a two week tour together or something on the East coast in 2019. Okay. Um, and at the time, you know, like Jeff was living in San Francisco. So like he and I went and like met up and got dinner and stuff like before the tour. And also same thing with Jeff. I was like immediately like, I like this dude. Like, man, can't believe I didn't know this guy already. We live a few miles from each other. And so just became friends with them. And then I guess in, um, they sort of toured like a lot that year. And then kind of maybe the end of 2019, early 2020, they had some shows booked for like spring of 2020 in Europe. And uh, Eric hit me up and was sort of like, hey, we need a second guitar player for this tour. Like, would you want to do it? And, um, and of course I was like, you know, it's not something I've ever done. Like I, I've never gone out playing, like playing some band songs that I'm not really in or anything, but it was like, well, I really like love being around these guys. It's Jerome's dream. It's a band that I've, you know, like I've been into since they were originally a band, you know, like I've, I just think they're. I think they're like a phenomenal band. And I thought that they really um, like when, when we played together in 2019, I thought that they really brought it, you know, like I was like, Oh damn, this isn't just some like reunion, like yeah. kind of play a couple shows. and like half ass it, you know, like they were like actually really, really good. So I was kind of like, Oh dude, I'd be proud to go on stage for these guys, you know? Right. Um, so Eric was living in LA at the time. And so he, um, he came up and he, Jeff and I played just to like learn some songs. And it was immediately like the, like musical chemistry wise, it was like, everything felt great. You know, like by the end of that practice, I was like, we have like, we know like a whole set. It sounds great. This is going to be awesome. And that was, I think that was like the last week of February, 2020. So like, you know, roll the calendar ahead, like two weeks and we're on lockdown and it's, you know, the world is ending. Right. And right. COVID COVID hits hard. So all those European shows got canceled. Um, and then basically it was like, you know, in the, in the year after that, I still was sort of like, I just stayed good friends with Eric and Jeff. Eric ended up moving up to San Francisco from LA. And so it was kind of like, they were some of the only people I was hanging out with during COVID. Cause we were sort of like in this bubble together. And um, we started playing, we just decided that we'd get together and like play music. Like 
not necessarily Jerome's dream, you know, it was just sort of like they wanted to get together and play. I have a practice space. Um, and we immediately like started writing stuff. And then we were kind of faced with this weird thing where it was like, well, is this a new band? Like, what is this? You know, like, I don't, I don't know what to call it. And then we were kind of like demoing and recording this stuff. And it was like, everyone agreed like, well, dude, it sounds, if we, if we call this something else and it sounds like Jerome's dream, is that weird? You know, like it sounded, I was like, dude, this can't, this sounds like Jerome's dream. And I think just because Eric and Jeff, um, as a rhythm section, like have such a like unique approach, I guess. So I was kind of like, dude, no matter what I do over this, it sounds like Jerome's dream. Like I, I can't take it out of that. Like, and that's a great thing, but you know, I think we're writing new Jerome's dream songs. Like weird, right. man. Let's call, it what, let's call it what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and they have a really, um, unique style that I'm not used to. And in a way it doesn't really interfere with what I'm doing with the other bands I'm in, because it's like the basis of all the songs are like Eric who plays drums. He'll come in with like, you know, guitar parts or even just like insinuated parts that are like, um, really rhythmic. And so it's kind of like a wild thing to get into this headspace where it's like, the songs originate with the drummer. And I think that's why the band sounds like it does like everything is so rhythmic and there's so much like, um, pulsing and sort of coming and going of the rhythm section all the time. And so it's a really cool way to write. And for me, I'm kind of like, well, I'm not, you know, it's like, I'm not, uh, my, the songs that I write aren't really going to Jerome's dream, but it's more like, you know, we get together and write collaboratively, but Eric is the basis for everything. Right. Right. No, let's I, I see what you're talking about. And yeah, it makes sense with, Jerome's dream as far as the way they've always existed it has always been with that rhythm first rather than you know the way that other bands structure stuff so it makes total sense yeah yeah it's just sort of fascinating to see it from the inside because I was like oh that's why (laughs) right yeah no matter what we do this is gonna sound like Jerome's dream so yeah that's that's funny yeah uh, the last thing I was going to hit on was the fact that, um, you know, because uh, primarily with Loma, just because that's where you've obviously had the most touring experience, um, you guys have definitely done a, you know, a lot of touring, but a lot of unconventional weather bills, whether it's like, oh yeah, playing, you know, with, with whatever Bane or Converge and like always kind of, you know, playing with bands that are like clearly part of like the hardcore and punk scene, but I'm sure that there have been uh, those head scratching shows where you're excited to play and you know that, that maybe this is going to be a tough crowd to play in front of um, yeah. are there experiences that kind of stick out in your head of being like, not even like good or bad, but just kind of stick out as being like, Oh yeah. Like this, this was definitely a, a, a wild show experience from that perspective. Dude, there's been so many, it's hard to even narrow down, you yeah, know, where, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. We, it's funny, we had practice last night and we were talking about, we played this, um, this was probably like 2009 or 10, we did this European tour and somehow we ended up getting put on this festival in Slovakia that was called Baghdad Mosh. And it was like, dude, it was crazy. It was like in this tiny little town, like obviously Slovakia is sort of like, you know, pretty far off the beaten path as a country. And then this was like in a town that was small in a region that wasn't near any city. And 
It was pretty much like 15 like crab core bands and Loma Prieta. And, (laughs) and it was, dude, it was the drunkest crowd I've ever seen in my life for one. Like that, like people, there was like a point during our set where I saw a dude go to like stage dive. And when he hit the crowd, everyone was so drunk that they just all started falling over. And it was like dominoes. There was like 60 people all like just down on the ground in the pit, you know? Right. Um, And I don't remember it being terrible. Like we definitely didn't sell much merch, you know, but I kind of feel like everyone was just wasted and like enjoying it and was like, maybe they were too drunk to even perceive that we were not the right kind of band. Like we didn't have the right moves. I know that because there was a lot of dudes like just, this was during the like attack attack, like crab core era, you know? So oh, totally. Yeah. You guys would not fit in with that from that side of things sonically. Yeah. So, sonically and our moves weren't right. You know, like we weren't getting down low, you know, we just oh, weren't right. doing, <laughs> we were just stages. doing us. We yeah. didn't. And so I don't know that we won a lot of people over, but that was a weird one. You know, I, I think <laughs> you, you were looking for a different answer, which is more like, you know, when we toured with like, remember touring with ceremony kind of in that era too, when they were oh, yeah. still very much like a power violence band and people really not knowing what to do with us, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Especially those, like when you are, you know, doing a longer run of dates, like, you know, people are always going to have those like weird either festival or, you know, off show experiences. But when you're locked into two, three, four weeks of like a particular tour and knowing that it's like a roll the dice in regards to a crowd reaction, but it's like, well, you know, there are friends and we're going to do this because it'll be fun. But then confronting with the fact that, once you start to see how crowds are reacting to you where it's like, Oh, Oh yeah, they don't like us. <laughs> so we're, <laughs> we're just going to have to, you know, play louder, or play faster, or like, you know, try to adapt to, you know, maybe make it a little more palatable to them, but you know, sometimes right. that's just not going to happen. Yeah, totally. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm up for the challenge. And honestly, you know, I felt like we did a tour with converge that I didn't know what it was going to be like going into it. And the response was great. So I, you know, that was fortunate, right? Like I felt, or maybe I just, you know, the thing is too, like I have no perception of what's going on while we're playing. I kind of like can't, I'm not looking at anyone and it's over and I'm like, what happened? You know? So maybe people did hate it. Like I, I remember someone like throwing a, like a full beer at me at a show once, but I couldn't, (laughs) but I like really couldn't tell if it was like, you know, I was like, man, maybe in this town, that's what you do when you think someone's awesome. You know, I like had to frame it like that for myself, for my own ego, you know? Of course. Yeah, <laughs> totally. You're just like, well, I, I like that idea, especially when you get, you know, when you get lost in your music and you're just playing the show and it takes something dramatic like that to be like, oh, 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 oh so you don't like me. Okay, got it. Yeah. Otherwise <laughs> I wouldn't have known. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. It's good reminder. Yeah, I'm still here on Earth, man. Like, you know, I'm not transcending anything. There's, you know, some dude just threw a tall boy at me. I don't know. Yes. How about that? Thank you very much to Sean and also Casey from Iodine Records for bringing the idea up to me. I love when people bring up good ideas to me or maybe even bad ideas, because then we can talk about how that's a bad idea and then it morphs into a good idea. Anyways, appreciate both of them. And like I said, you need to check out the new Jerome's Dream record. It is so, so good. And uh, yeah, couldn't recommend it higher. Next week, I have a twofer. I have two members of a particular band. I have Grady 
And Jeff from Willhaven. If you don't know Willhaven, oh my gosh. Like, let's let's put this down. Let's just go ahead and check them out immediately. Willhaven definitely came up in the uh, mid-90s as far as metallic hardcore was concerned. And uh, being from Southern California, they played down here a decent amount. I just love them. And uh, they have been putting out records, I-, I would say casually, over the past, like, I don't know, 10 years or so. And they have a new record coming out. But uh, yeah, wanted to talk to Grady. And then I heard... <laughs> Grady referenced Jeff so much in his interview that I was like, you know what? I need to have both of them on here. So that's what we got next week, Grady and Jeff from Willhaven. So until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English, and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. 